welcome to another episode of the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Podcast. I am your host, Karen Litzy, and this is episode 165. And today I'm going to be talking with physical therapist Eric Kruger, and we'll kind of uh, talk a little bit more about him in a second. But before I get going with that, I want to go to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart Community Board. And uh, I know I spoke about this when I interviewed Sharon Dunn last month. Uh, but now I have more information on the Physical Therapy Day of Service. So this day is a global movement uh, where physical therapists from around the world are asked to perform an act of service on the same day. That day is October 17th, which is a Saturday, and then promote that act in the name of the profession. The service can be as big as completing a mission trip to as simple as reaching out to your local communities. So save the date, October 17, 2015, to be a part of the global movement to unite the profession and the communities we serve. And if you want more information about the Global PT Day of Service, their website is up. It's live. You can go to ptdayofservice.com. If you want to be a part of the PT Day of Service, you just have to register. They also have um, T-shirts for sale, so I would highly suggest you get a T-shirt. Um, so that way, when you're doing your charity work, everybody's in a T-shirt. People know where where you are, where you're coming from, and why you're doing what you're doing. Snap some pictures, put it up on social media. I'm sure there will be much more information uh, as the date gets closer. So go to ptdayofservice.com. Follow them on Facebook. Follow them on Twitter. I think it's hashtag ptdayos. So. Uh, if you're, if you want to be a part of it, which if you're a physical therapist, I think that you should, uh, go to ptdayofservice.com. Okay. So going on to today's episode, I am happy to have on today, Eric Kruger. He is a physical therapist that is currently in the process of adding more letters to his name because that's what every physical therapist wants. Um, he'll be adding PhD while taking a few more years off of his life. At the University of New Mexico, he is studying pain perception at the convergence of social, uh, social health and evolutionary psychology. His career as a physical therapist began in sports and orthopedics, but took an unexpected turn when he started asking deeper questions about the nature of pain and our professional ability to impact it. These questions have culminated in a passion for steering our profession directly at the challenges faced by pain and how to care for those experiencing it. So, Eric, welcome to the podcast. Hi, thanks for having me on. Okay, so I met Eric, uh, I don't know, in person, in real life, outside of social media, last year, I think, at Adrian Lowe's conference, right? Yeah, that, that's right, that's that right. right. I think yeah. And then Eric was one of the speakers uh, this past year at the San Diego Pain Summit, had a really great talk, really thought-provoking, and so I wanted to get him onto the podcast to talk about that for people who weren't able to attend the San Diego Pain Conference. Um, so Eric, before we get started, uh, can you just talk a little bit more about why you wanted to go on to get a PhD? This is not a, a, a small undertaking. So what motivated you to go on to, to do this? Sure, yeah. I, I think from the onset in, in PT school, I was always, even before that, even before that, I've always been really interested in research and science. Uh, 
started with exercise physiology and then in PT school, it was motor control. And I guess I thought after I practiced for some years that I would go be doing some of the same things that maybe like Paul Hodges is doing, um, looking at movement and movement variability and its relationship to pain. And, um, but during the process of working with people, uh, things things sort of changed. I started to uh, see the complexities of working with people and that it was more than just movement-related disorders that were related to uh, why people had pain. And so I practiced for about four or five years in Seattle, and then I took a year off and I traveled kind of around the world, Africa and Central America, and, and I worked with people and uh, some different NGOs and, and doing some things that was a little bit outside the scope of physical therapy, but it really exposed me to a lot of the social complexities of life. And then coming back to the States, I took a job at a trauma center and um, working with, uh, working, with uh, working class individuals and poor class individuals and people that just didn't have the same resources as, as uh, many of us have. And so... Um, in that setting and some of the previous work, I really started to, to see how complex the situation of, of pain really was and how much social factors were really playing into account with some of my uh, patients' presentations. And so I think that's what sort of the genesis to going back to, to psychology. And, and that's where I, I eventually, um, uh, I guess, f- fixed my uh, direction in terms of like, professional achievement and more, more letters on my name. And so how are you liking it? How are you liking your classes and being at the university of New Mexico? Is it kind of what you thought it was going to be or, or is it better? Is it better? It's, 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 it's good. It's good. It's, uh, I really like, uh, learning things. So that, that aspects of life is good. I can grow my hair out. Uh, that's great. I don't have to worry about the professional standards of uh, being in front of people all day because I'm really, as opposed to being a clinical psychologist, I am a, what you would call the pl- applied uh, experimental health psychologist. So I focus on research um, and and helping clinicians um, do research. And so, um, so, so what that so what that means and. Um, in terms of my day to day, is a lot of it's uh, reviewing journal articles and uh, and statistics and things like that. But overall, I like it a lot. I'm enjoying the coursework. We, um, uh, I feel like I'm really lucky to have some of the mentors at this school, Kevin Bowles and Jacob V Hill specifically. Both are involved in pain. Jacob is more from an evolutionary side of things and. And uh, Kevin Bowles is uh, one of the leaders in what's called acceptance and commitment therapy, which within the psychology literature is very um, is very uh, big uh, in terms of a, a treatment approach. But I mean, it sounds great, and and I'd like to know since you started this coursework, what has been. And these are, so I'm throwing this on you. This is just, we'll get to the questions that I, I usually, sure. that I sent ahead of time. But um, since you started this coursework, how has it changed, or has it changed your personal perception of pain? And perhaps has it changed how you may go out now and treat 
people in pain? Almost certainly. Um, so what I've been doing lately uh, over the last probably six, six to eight months is, is, well, spending a lot of time with psychologists, but spending time um, in some of the group classes that they teach, um, spending time in, and just really watching and, and participating to some extent um, in, in some of those, in some of the, their ways of interacting with individuals. And it's, it's different. I mean, it's much more um, engaging with the person on an experiential level. Um, so I think that part of it, being in a, an environment where I can get to do a little bit of that and see, and, and see that done, allows me a chance to feel more confident that as a, as a, as a therapist, I could do some of those things. Cause it's not necessarily rocket science. You just need to have a little bit of practice and have someone to show you a little bit of the way and give you a little bit of direction in terms of how to do those things. So I think now, um, and, and still I'm gaining confidence and being the, the ability to be able to do that. Uh, yeah. Does that, yeah, does that no, answer that, your question? Yeah, absolutely. And I, it's something that, do you feel that that's something physical therapists or healthcare practitioners need within their practice or need to practice more or need to understand? Yeah, I think it is. I think it's, it's not something that, I think it's important to recognize that it's not something that, at least in my opinion, that we've gotten a lot of training in. I think, um, you know, talking with with uh, educators and, and reflecting upon my own training is oftentimes there might be a lecture on motivational interviewing, but there's not necessarily the course practicum of that, or you're not actually getting a lot of practice in that. Someone's not videotaping you while you're doing a motivational interview. So you uh, were saying going from like a physical therapist, which I agree. When I was in school, I didn't get any motivational interviewing sure, sure. skills, none. Forget about being videotaped doing a yeah, motivational yeah. interview. I mean, that's right, right. That's hard. That's daunting. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's a little, it's a little bit scary to to, to think about uh, being in front of a videotape and having someone someone critique your ability to interact with a patient or another person. But I think the important thing to to recognize is that it's all about, you know, you're, 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 you're becoming better at the skill that you're trying to work on. Mm -hmm. And so it's directly recognizing that the skill that we're trying to work on is, is how we interact with somebody and not necessarily, and that's really just the words that we use and how we convey ourselves non-verbally, um, the postures that we adopt, how, how we hold ourselves in front of somebody else um, and not just the use of our hands or the intervention techniques that we've been taught. So I think growing that within our profession is just a matter of, of valuing it and then fitting in, fitting it into our curriculum, um, whether that's during the, during the three years of the DPT or it's, or it's um, post-professional type of work. I think it can be both. And I think it should happen early on. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's in my opinion, but I think, Right now, there's not a lot of, from a research standpoint, there's there's a few people who are kind of bridging that gap. I've, I've seen a few studies on motivational interviewing, some pilot work. Um, that's something that I'll, I have an interest in doing later on. Um, to my knowledge, I don't, I'm trying to think if there's been work with acceptance and commitment therapy um, in PT. There might be some pilot work done there too. I'm, 
Um, I don't think so. I could be wrong there, though. But anyways, I think it's from a research, we need to grow that body of evidence to say, hey, therapists can do this. Um, and and con- conversing with psychologists, I mean, they're, they're more than happy to, to help us learn these skills. I mean, I, I've, I've had no sort of that. I think there was this fear when I, when I first started school that there was going to be some professional kind of scope of practice kind mm-hmm. of territorial tank, stuff, territorial stuff, but no one, I, I haven't experienced any of that. And I think they, I think they, that a lot of people realize is that there's not enough psychologists to do this type of work. There's not enough people just that have this type of skill. So let's, 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 let's get more people this sort of training. Um, and it was funny. I mean, just, just along that note, uh, I was in a meeting with a group of psychologists and we were talking about, uh, some, some basic exercises that perhaps they could give to some of their patients and some of their behavioral meetings. And it was interesting from their standpoint, how, how fearful they were of that entire process, not, just because it didn't jive with a lot of their training. And I think that there, there's this kind of professional gap between the two fields, between psychology and physical therapy, that that um, that people are kind of like, you know, we don't want to encroach on what they're doing. We don't have the, the training. And so I think a profession needs to kind of try, to try to close that gap. And I think we have a lot of those abilities to do that. I mean, I think naturally as therapists, we're, we're good with people. I think and I think – good therapists are really good with people and they find these things out just through the act of practicing with lots of patients. So I think it's just about kind of enhancing that, providing more training um, so that we can, we can further our skills there. Yeah, I, I agree a hundred percent. And I really like the idea. Uh, you sort of mentioned this before about the importance of our expressions and our behaviors as clinicians and how, how they might influence our patient's pain, either positively, negatively. So can you speak a little bit more to that? So taking out our words to the patients, but how about our expressions, our behaviors? I know I I was at Adrian Lowe's course and Louis Puentendora was talking a little bit about this in his breakout session. And he said, you know, when you're talking with the patient, and, and they're telling you about their pain, like, you don't want to sort of give that wide-eyed, like, wow kind of a look, because that can really right. make the patient feel like, oh, my God, am I, like, am I dying? Like, how, how serious is this? So, so how, what, what is the importance of, of our expressions and behaviors, uh, and how can it change pain perceptions in the patient? Yeah, and I think that's really, like, really touches on where my research wants to start at, and it's this idea that Basically, our expression doesn't always jive with our experience. I mean, meaning that sometimes our, we we express things to 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 impact the people around us, but our experience may be something different. So that's a little bit maybe abstract. But from a from a clinician standpoint, we have a tremendous power to kind of shape the person's um, experience by just how we respond to their. experience. I think that starts with, I think as uh, you, were, you were mentioning it, um, Adrian Lowe's, uh, the, the wide-eyed look, um, or the frightened look, or like, I've never heard that before sort of look. Uh, I, think it, I think it's about um, 
um, realizing that uh, we need to sort of accept and sort of validate that person's expression to start with. Really, that's that's empathy right there. Um, but we, we're not always really trained in that. When we do a subjective intake, it's how intense is your pain? Mm -hmm. uh, where is it at? Um, you know, is it is it tingling? Is it, do you have numbness? I and mean, these are the types of questions that we're indoctrinated with, but not necessarily to go broader and deeper and to help the patient develop a narrative around this illness and injury. So my question is, is as physical therapists, how can we help the patient create this narrative around their pain versus just saying, on a scale from one to 10, what is your pain? Is it, you know, throbbing, aching, or what have you? So how can, because a lot of, so let's just say a lot of insurance companies need those values, which is fine. But, sure. but then how do we, as physical therapists, do what you're talking about, kind of going a little deeper and changing the narrative? Sure. I think it, it starts with, I mean, simply just asking open-ended questions. Um, you know, the question, the question that I like to ask and what I think is really uh, a simple question is, is what is your pain like? And then you just stop there. Or maybe what is your experience like? Maybe you don't even use the word pain because that's a little too confining. Um, say, what is your experience like? How has this been for you? Um, those types of open-end questions allow the patient to really start to, to, to fill in the, fill in that space with more adjectives, metaphors, possibly, um, um, and, and, and bring up things that you might not necessarily have expected in terms of how they're relating to their pain. Not always. I mean, some people will, you give them, you ask those questions and they may talk for 15 minutes. Other people might give you a two word answer. And so you have to be willing to kind of maybe ask a few open-ended questions. And if they're not giving you much, maybe you direct the, direct the, uh, uh, the evaluation to something else for a little bit and you come back to it. Um, the individuals that are, are willing to, to go a little bit further with you, you let them just kind of express what they want to express in that moment. You might redirect them a little bit, might guide them um, if they're, if they're, if they're getting really repetitive, um, you might try to guide them back to some aspect of what they said earlier to try to get them kind of moving on. But you try to try to really let that out. And oftentimes, I think it's it's the biggest rapport building thing that we can do. If you really let that process play out, and you don't try to 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 shut it down too early, or you don't try to direct them to, I think the more objective portion or the kind of tests and measures that we do mm -hmm. too quickly. I think you can really, really build that what we call a therapeutic or working alliance with that, with the patient, um, right there in that first session, um, because you're really validating why that they're there. I think you have to really be careful about how you're responding. You can't do things that I mean, if you ha if you have the belief in your head that their pain is not real or that this is they're being. Um, you know, really uh, dramatic about their pain. If you have that belief, then you might be subtly doing things mm -hmm. in terms of your nonverbal behaviors that are expressing that. Maybe you're not necessarily saying that directly to the patient, but I think I think if you have that belief, uh, it's going to maybe subtly ask uh, impact that interaction. So I think really holding true that that 
the importance of what that first kind of intake uh, with a patient, having them express really what's going on with them in the, in the, in the most um, unencumbered way, I guess. So, so it sounds to me like you're saying even as the therapist starting out on that first session to kind of go in with an, for you as a therapist, an open mind and, sure. and not try and keep your biases. I mean, we all have biases, right? But trying to keep those biases at a very, very low level and just allow the patient to tell their story. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I can think of one patient I had, uh, uh, a number of years back had a knee surgery. Um, it was, it was pretty minor knee surgery. I think it was like a meniscectomy or something like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, pretty, pretty emotionally upset in this first appointment. And I could, I could sense this and I was, I was talking with her and, you know, we hadn't really gotten far. I mean, I think I had her laying on the plinth and just as I was sitting next to her talking with her, um, and eventually came to the core of what the issue was, was related to her, her fear that this injury was going to physically disable her and that that physically being disabled was going to lead to her partner leaving her or something along those lines. And, um, and we talked about that for a little bit, you know, I just reassured her that this process was, you know, I kind of talked, spoke to her injury and reassured her about the process that she was going to go through and how that we were going to take care of her, um, in terms of getting her back to doing these things. And, um, and then she was able to focus after, right after that, okay, what do I need to do? Mm-hmm. What do I need to do? And it was, that was like a, a, a watershed moment in my mind, just the power of really spending the time and really fleshing out these things. Um, and, it, you know, I didn't go about it in a prying way. I didn't like have a set of questions in front of me and I'm going to get to this and this and this. It was really kind of this process of letting her explain things and then sort of through a process of reflective listening, you know, picking up on things that where she might be kind of stuck on or really where her fears or her uh, catastrophizing Mm -hmm. centered around. And and once I figured that out, then with her, we were able to allow her to express a little bit more and then really immediately move to kind of explain what this process was. And then after that, she was really open to the whole experience. And I think think in my mind, if I had sort of just gotten the basics of what her injury was, what her surgery was, and then maybe said a few words right in the beginning about, the surgery and I didn't really ask her what was going on with her life and then moved right to treatment. I think previously I would have, and I'm just reflecting on other experiences where I don't know if it would have gone so well. Maybe she would have showed up for a second visit or maybe she'd gone to three visits, but she wouldn't really had participated in the home program that I was trying to establish with her mm-hmm. to, to allow her need to recover. So I think that's a really good example of maybe trying to explain a little bit of that, but yeah, it really comes down to really, minimizing the amount of assumptions that you can make and realize that they're, they are always there, but if you can recognize them mm-hmm. and sort of say, maybe I was assuming this, but that will, but be, I guess, the, I guess be prepared to be surprised, you know, go in with it, be like, don't think that you know everything and be surprised about some stuff that you're going to learn within that session. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think that what a powerful moment 
for the patient who is, you know, who had clearly, you know, post-surgical procedure catastrophized a good portion of her life as a result of this procedure, right. surgery, which, you know, happens, you know, I, I mean, I, I've had chronic pain in the past, it's pretty much at bay at this point, but I could remember going through those catastrophizing moments of, you know, I'm not going to be able to work. I'm not going to be able to do this. And I think that it really held me back as a patient um, from even seeking out help. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. yeah and and it, it's, it's, it sucks. You know, it, does. it sucks. Like if, if you're the therapist and you have a patient on the table telling you these things, like pay attention to it. Because if you don't, you're going to lose that patient. That patient's going, or, or, or even, not you're going to lose the patient, that patient's going to lose their confidence in you, and that's why the patient leaves. Exactly. Yeah. You know? And, I, and I, think, I think the important thing is to say that a lot of this, I didn't have to go and really dig deep and be like, well, why is this, and, and all these different things. You know, we kind of figured it out rather quickly. It was a rather quick intervention in this case, and and. Um, I didn't have to go through the patient's childhood or really be very probing. And that wasn't, wasn't my, 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 my intention, but it is to realize that a lot of this stuff probably was things that happened, experiences that they've had. And I didn't, I, and I wasn't going to go and, and blame the patient for that. It, was, it wasn't their fault that things that, that unfortunate things happened to them in the past. And I don't need to go into that so much. I think that, um, we have to be careful about that. We have to be sort of saying, well, this patient, you know, doesn't understand this. And we sort of, there's this layer of blame sort of saying, you know, we can't give, give our patients a little bit of slack here that, you know, everyone's had traumatic things that they've had in the past. And we, we need to accept that some of that is going to influence how they perceive the world today. And we have to just cut them that slack and, and be open-minded and willing to kind of engage with them and, and, and flesh those things out. And is it safe to say kind of what's coming up in my head is like, you know, we're, like you said, you, you're, you weren't going deep into her past to, to find out why she thinks the way she thinks right now. But is it safe to say as physical therapists to delve into the psychology of the patient as it relates to the reason they're there to see you? Sure. Yeah. Right? I think, yeah. I mean, I think it's, I think that's, perfectly fine. And really her mind was showing me where it wanted to go. I just had to be open and not get in the way. Mm -hmm. I had to sort of step back and sort of say, Hey, just ask a couple more open-ended questions. And it, it showed me where those, those fears and catastrophizes were, were centering around. I didn't have to go and, and, and really probe for it. I think, I think, I think even building this skill will be able to better recognize people that are suicidal and, or or have or have serious depression or bipolar and and get these people referred to to clinical psychologists because that's really what they specialize in. We're not going to treat those sort of things. That's not that's not where I want the where I think we need to go. I guess I, mm -hmm. I think that that is clearly. But I think there's a whole case of individuals that you know just basic human psychology is that. Things in our past affect how we perceive the world right here and right now. And so, and a lot of that is not necessarily treatment for these other uh, other types of kind of DSM 
DSM sort of conditions. And that's really what the clinical psychologists specialize in. Yeah. And so I think, I think if you can team up and sort of have a referral network in, in place where you can have trusted clinicians that you can say, okay, this is looking like a little bit bigger than what I can, what, 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 you, what the type of issue that, that um, you came in to see me, let's get you to someone that's a little, got a little bit more training in this specifically um, and try to get them referred on. I think that's, that's another big part of our practice that we need to improve on. Yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I've, I mean, in the past, I've had a patient who came in to see me and, and he's one of those patients where this is before I started really delving into a lot of the, the neuroscience and psychology behind pain. And now I feel like I could, I wish I could go back and be like, I'm so sorry. Like I could have done so much more, but at the time I just wasn't equipped to do that. Yeah. And so I did refer him. I mean, I think he probably needed the the pain neuroscience and pain education along with some psychological intervention. Um, mm. But I feel like that would have missed opportunity. It's like totally my bad. Um, but I mean, everybody has that. But yeah, um, I mean that's I was, just learning. Yeah, it's just learning. And but I was happy that I had someone to refer on refer him on to. Yeah. And I think, you know, I talked about this with uh, Mike Eisenhart a couple of weeks ago that the future of physical therapy is in the collaboration with others and the partnering yeah. with others, um, especially when you have, if you're working with this population of pain and chronic pain, I mean, I think you need to have a good clinical psychologist to refer people to. I think it's really important. Yeah, I think you need, I mean, that's essentially what I like doing is collaborating with these other people and, and physicians as well. You really need this interdisciplinary team. Unfortunately, what's happened in the genesis of, I think, you know, least care in the United States is that we've really moved to kind of specialization, but really a limited talk between these specialties Previous back in the in the seventies and the early eighties, interdisciplinary care for for uh, severe chronic pain was was more of a thing, um, and then uh, interventional pain specialization um, really took that over, which was much more of a biomedical approach. Yeah, hundred um, percent. And so I think I think it, it's it's a, it's a little bit extra work for you as a clinician to 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 go out there and try to make these relationships happen with other providers but i think it's also a lot more rewarding because then you feel like you're not alone you're not you're not alone just you've got to you've got to work with this patient and 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 do everything it's like really you can see this from multiple angles and i think i think that it can also have the potential just to build your even referral base if you're a, if you're a solo private practitioner i mean you now you have these people that you're interacting with and you have a, a, a potential greater uh, referral base and really people that you can trust and have a conversation with that aren't just going to send you patients and not give you any sort of information about them. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I mean, I think building, not only, we always talk about building these meaningful relationships with our patients, which is obviously paramount, but you also have to build meaningful, meaningful relationships with you're, like you said, different physicians and referral sources, because you want to be able to speak your mind mm -hmm. to these referring uh, physicians or clinical psychologists 
because that's what works best for the patient. Yeah. And consistent messaging for the patient. I mean, if the yes. patient's getting if the patient's getting a really a biomedically centered message from a provider, then you have perhaps a psychologist that's that's really going into perhaps other issues and then you have you in as a physical therapist really focused on the movement it i mean i would be confused by that i i mean i, I can't imagine anyone not being confused so i think if you have a team of providers that's communicating and has a common message that they're all trying to provide um which is uh um i think really enhances your outcome then they're not getting then they're not getting just frustrated with the medical system in general. They're more likely to be engaged with it and can really kind of see how everything's trying to kind of come together for them. Right, especially when they start to get even the little bit, even a small amount of a positive outcome. Mm -hmm. And I'm not talking outcome studies or outcome tools. I'm talking you woke up and you didn't have pain for the first time in five years. Yeah huge and you're like wait this is working because I woke up and I didn't have this pain right okay and maybe it's once a week and maybe that goes to two times a week you know it's a slow process but if the patient can see that little that when you get that first little bit of like whoa this is working right. that is motivation and that's the patient who's can see the value in physical therapy and in the collaboration Right. And it's and, huge. And one of the funny things about what you just said there is sometimes what a patient will say from one provider to the next, if you've got an interdisciplinary team, might be different because what they're trying to get from that patient, that different provider, is a little bit different. So they might say to the provider that physical therapy isn't working, even though they like going to physical therapy and getting something out of it because perhaps they want to try to get um, – you know, relief in terms of a medication or a treatment. So if you have the team that's talking together, now that they're really integrated, they can say, well, yeah, there are actually, they're liking this, but the pro, you know, you can have a really uh, nuanced conversation about those things. And it, and it also, you know, it, it's funny, you get providers and they might hear from the pa patient providers. I mean, doctors or nurse practitioners mm -hmm. or PAs, but they might hear from the patient physical therapy, uh, didn't work for me and they may not, they just don't really ask the next question why, or they may not consult that therapist. What was actually going on there? And there, there's so many opportunities for, uh, you know, targeting specific aspects of behavior and, and enhancing, enhancing just the, the, um, the kind of the behavior change model by having those, those kind of conversations, but you have to be c communicating across disciplines in order for that to happen and really figuring out, well, what's going on in these other, other worlds. So, yeah, yeah I, I, 100%. And, and that kind of takes me into the kind of the next question. And I think we've spoken to, we've sort of talked to this next question a little bit, but how can we, we'll say as physical therapists, how can we help our patients plot a course through this uncertainty of pain? And I think, we just spoke about collaboration across professions, and I think that's a huge, um, a huge part of it. But going back to what you said about the the woman with the meniscectomy, you said you listened to her, and then you explained, and I feel like that was your you plotting a course. 
So what can you say to other physical therapists and how they ca- how they can plot a course to get people through these pain, very complex pain issues? Yeah, I mean, I think it's challenging. I think I think the important thing is to to take a to, to take like a humble view in my mind is that no matter how good of a therapist we are, um, there's unforeseen things that will happen in the future, whether, whether that's physical or psychological or social, social sort of traumas that happen to us. And though the fact that, that we can't control those things means that we can't necessarily control what's going to happen with this, this person in front of us. Even though we can give them the best, best care we can, there's things that we, we just simply can't control. So how do we... I think, in my mind, kind of plot a course and work through that. And I think, um, first and foremost, it's it's that process of validating why that they're there. Secondly, it goes to speaks to ruling out sinister or significant um, diagnoses that would either really impact their function, prolong the the length of treatment, or be uh, a referral out. I mean, obviously cancer, but also like, you know, if you have someone that has a full thickness rotator cuff tear, that's going to really change your opinion on what you, what this person can do and can't do and mm-hmm. those types of things. Um, so I think that's what we're, 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 we're really good at. And I think really communicating that to the patient, honestly, but I think we also have to minimize the amount of, this is where controlling our own messaging is really important the things that we're saying to the patient is minimizing the amount of fear and catastrophizing that we're implanting the patient. If we, if we sort of say, you know, if, if you don't, you know, if you don't move this way, something bad's going to happen. That's just, that's just as bad as sort of saying, well, you know, the, the, in my opinion, I mean, I don't know, there's is, as sort of saying that, Oh, your, your discs in your, in your back are, are out or they're, that's the worst, you know, you look at their MRI or x-ray or whatever, this is the worst back I've ever seen. I don't, I don't see how those two things are different. So we have to really try to normalize and sort of say that this is a pain is actually a normal part of the human condition. Um, It's normal for us to experience. It's a very important part. And I don't say you actually use this actual language that I'm using right now, but, um, and then then you differentiate that from suffering. Is this person really suffering from this, this experience of pain. I mean, like you said that you've, you've had an experience of pain throughout your life. I've had an experience of pain that's been mostly pretty consistent throughout my life, off and on, various things trigger it. Mm-hmm. But do I suffer from these conditions? And I'd say probably not. Um, there's times where it affects me a little bit more, but it's not, I guess, suffering and really kind of trying to differentiate that. And so if we can work through that, through the through our kind of normal processes, but not triggering uh, any more fear and catastrophizing. And I think I think we can really get patients to to I think which is really the heart of it is, uh, and this is a big thing within acceptance and commitment therapy. And this is kind of something that's really become into my repertoire as I've gone back to school. Is that return to value living? And I, I spoke a little bit this about the San Diego mm-hmm. San Diego Pain Summit, but it's this idea. Of, what are identified in the patient values? And, and I think from a medical standpoint or an allied health sciences standpoint, we, 
we think pain and suffering are the same thing in that the alleviation of pain equals the alleviation of suffering. And that's what we value. But that's but I think the science is showing that that's not really true. And and we have to we can't just apply that value to our patients. We have to sort of say, okay, let's let's look at the patient and see see what they value or what they valued in the past and help them move towards those things. Uh, I think, go ahead. Oh, no, I was going to say, what are some, if you can give some examples, let's say, of, of a patient value? Sure, sure. Well, I think, I think the, the big thing that differentiates a value from a goal or a function, which goals and functions, I think what we as physical therapists are really great at, mm-hmm. at hammering on mm-hmm. is is that these things are obtainable. Goals and functions are generally obtainable things that have an endpoint. Okay, I want to make, you know, <laughs> I want to make 70% of my free throws. Okay, that's I can hit that goal. Um, or I want to run a marathon at this time, I can hit that goal. I think the bigger thing of value might be like being close to my family and friends. I mean, social social closeness is something that we all crave. And, and that... Um, that's not something that we ever satisfy. There's not some point where it's like, all right, I got it. I'm close to my mom. I'm done. Like, uh-huh. it's like, it's like. Well achieved. Yeah. It's like, I don't need to worry about that. Knock that off the list. Uh-huh. It's something that we have to enact moment after moment, day after day, week after week of our lives. Um, and there's constantly a process that we're engaged in. And so they're really processes that we're, that we are fulfilled by that are constantly reinforcing of our own behaviors. And I, the the big the big kind of difference is recognizing a pain behavior versus a well behavior. A pain behavior might be part of it's the expression of pain, part of it's maybe trying to seek alleviation through medications, treatments, massage, all these different types of things. That makes sense to a point, but if that's all your if that's a constituting a big portion of your life at the sacrifice of well behaviors, being close to people, going out and engaging the world, being fulfilled by by through your work and through through uh, life yeah life um, if it's coming in as a consequence of that well we need to figure out how to have that conversation with patients mm-hmm. how do you um, how do you have that how do you get well, into it's, that type of conversation it's <laughs> it's the, the interesting thing is is sitting uh, sitting in and working with psychologists in these chronic pain groups is that it's people don't necessarily understand what it's not like it comes to mind what a value is. It actually takes, you have to kind of provide some information like, like I just provided what about yeah. what a value is. And then yeah, I had to ask. And, yeah. And then, and then a process of reflection, sort of what is it that I'm actually going to want to go after? And so that's, that's sort of a, a mindful intentional, okay, this is actually what I want to go after here. And then it's committed action to that. And so it's sort of saying, so I'm giving you sort of the acceptance. I'm really talking about the acceptance and commitment therapy, but mm-hmm. that's um, that's what I've been exposed to a lot in the last eight months. And then it's okay. What are the actions that that move me towards that value? Mm-hmm. Okay, so and 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 helping the 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 person discriminate or or identify which actions are are leading towards that value and which ones aren't. And uh, these are. Th- very what what we might take for granted in this conversation as being simple things to understand take a lot of thought and and and, and I think we'd be surprised at maybe how little of our day is actually spent 
thinking and devoted to these things. And so um, it's a process of trying to communicate these things in a language that makes sense with each person in front of you. And I think you have to tailor that language to different people. You can't uh, always explain it the same way, just the way, the same way that sort of the pain neurosciences explained slightly different ways, um, more meta, meta, metaphorically, but yeah, that's, that's, that's the process. I think so that, you're saying, you're saying there's no one size fits all. You can't have the same roadmap for every patient. Yeah, Come yeah. on. Exactly. It'll be so I much think, easier. Yeah. But I think that there are common values that we all, I mean, they're, they're almost like if you want to think of them as biological drives, being close to people, we've all, we've sought that out since the day we were born mm-hmm. to, you know, the day we die, we, we want that. And I think this, the, our inability to, to feel that is a, is a, is a constant source of distress in our society and our, in ourselves. And, and so that's a very common thing. And what, the, what the goals, what it looks like for each individual is going to be slightly different. I mean, I, I think I, I use the, 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 in the talk, I talk about something a little bit closer maybe to physical therapy that physical therapists can relate with is kind of like marathon running. Say you have a runner that, you know, really wants to hit this time at this date and they're, they're not going to slow down. And you, and you're saying, well, you know, this is probably, you know, you're coming to me for, for, for these injuries, this, these, this pain that you're experiencing and, and, but you have this thing and you're really inflexible about this thing in your life. And the, the, the trick is to try to, to increase the flexibility. So maybe your goal is to, to be a really accomplished athlete, or maybe that's really your values to be seen as that. Um, how you go about that might be, there might be more flexibility there. Maybe it doesn't have to be, you know, running on this date at this time mm-hmm. in this way. Maybe we have to think about this more flexibly. It's not always an easy conversation. It oftentimes can feel feel difficult, um, even from a therapeutic standpoint. Um, but if, I think if you sacrifice your own ability to like really try to control that outcome, like I need to fix this person by this date, you can really, in terms of as a therapist, open your mind to a whole bunch of other things that can go on within the within the within the um, the therapy session. Sure. Yeah, and I, you know, I think something I think for the listeners to reflect upon would be what, what are your well behaviors? You know, we go to work, I mean, even as therapists, you know, you go to work, you treat people, you, you listen to people all day, you come home, maybe you have a family, maybe you, maybe you don't, but what are the well behaviors and the val or what are your values and what behaviors are you working towards to kind of, be in line with those values because we don't achieve values, right? Right. You right. just sort of keep yourself in line with them. And, and, you know, looking back at, at patients with chronic pain or even myself and in, in the days where I had, you know, a significant amount of pain, I, I don't, I was, a, a lot of times I just wanted to get through the day. Yeah. There was no, and, and I think that my, that, like you said, closeness to friends or family, that certainly fell to the wayside. Right. You know, because right. when, you, when you're in a lot of pain, like, you don't want to go out and hang out with your friends. Right. Like, right. it's not fun. It's not fun when you have to sit there and fidget and be all uncomfortable and be in pain or it's not fun. Right. 
There's nothing fun about it. And you don't feel good about yourself. You don't, you, and I think you may project on yourself, like I'm obviously a drag to be around. So why would I want to subject my friends and family to this when they might not be seeing that at all, but you feel it. So I think it's important to think about those things when you're interviewing or when you're having your sessions with those people with chronic pain conditions. And I think it's the important thing is it's, it's a process um, what, mm-hmm. one of the, it's a process of sort of small steps, I guess, if you want to think of it that way, it's like, you know, say you identify the value and then you want to take committed action. So it's like the ex- example is just, you know, engaging with a community in, in the broader world, you know, yeah, perhaps if you go, go full steam at that, that, that value on day one and you go out and say, I'm going to go to a you know, a concert, I'm going to go to this coffee shop and, and engage in this, listen to this author talk. And then I'm going to have, the, yeah, you might, that might be a, a disaster waiting to happen. Much mm-hmm. like the same thing as if you have an athlete that, that wants to return to sport and you, you progress them, you know, too quickly that it's, it's a process of taking small steps. I mean, our, our brain, the patterns in the way we move, there's similar patterns in our own attention is in terms of where it focuses even within our own selves. And so we got to slowly think of it as a graded process. Otherwise, you know, it's probably not going to work, work for people. So it's, it's, you know, and I think really allowing the, the, you present the information, promote reflective conversations and, and then try to encourage steps um, um, towards that committed action. Um, and not try to go for a full sell. I mean, some patients might take it up in it, you know, really quickly, but you know, that's great if that works for them, but you just can't expect everyone to move along those same lines. Right. Right. And, and I think taking smaller steps and seeing the results of those smaller steps, if they're positive results is great reinforcement. If you kind of go too quickly and there's a big step setback, whoa, Yeah. like you're talking, you know, well, I tried to do X, Y, and Z, and now this failed again, and I failed at this, and this, and then the catastrophization, catastrophization can just build. Yeah, and, th- and I think then, then as a therapist, it's really important that you try to discriminate or identify or separate out. Well, this is, you know, you were taking commit, committed, committed action towards this, and maybe if you would you know, gone to, to, to this point, which is like an hour at this activity, Maybe you would have been fine there. And if you hold it there for a few weeks or a few days and then you go to an hour and a half, you'd have been fine at that too. But you went for four hours and that was just more more stimulus than your body was ready to accept at that point. And, and yeah, it's, it's really – I think there's really parallels between how we focus on rehab progression to this – I mean, it's just graded exposure. Mm-hmm. It's, it's really just – there's so many parallels and – if we can just see the see some of these issues as not just a physical thing, but it's really it's really across all aspects of the of the the patient's behavior that we're trying to work work with. Yeah, I mean you're talking about multiple systems, right? Yeah. And all those systems need to to be in sync and they need to work and, and I think and more importantly the patient needs to understand how all of those systems can affect their experience. Exactly. And, and that's a, a good, a great spot 
a great opening for physical therapists. Yeah. You know, kind of converging a lot of these movement systems and, and even psychological systems, pain mechanisms coming in and being the people, being that person, being that practitioner who A, has the time to spend with the patient and B, has the knowledge to kind of take all of this and put it together. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, I think there's a gap between, like I was saying, the two professions and then patients are just falling through the cracks there. And I think, I think we, we can learn these skills. There's nothing that I've seen that just with the proper practice that we can't learn and we can't take on a little bit. Yeah. We don't need to be, you know, Freud or Uh Carl Jung, or we don't need to lay people back on a couch and delve into, you know, I mean, all that stuff's outdated anyways. And we're finding that we don't need to do all those sort of things. Right. Even psychologists. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's there. And I think, I think the process too has the potential to really, you know, help ourselves as, and this is something I feel kind of passionately about. I don't get a chance to talk about as much, but help ourselves as therapists really enjoy our, enjoy the practice of working with people. Yes. If we, if we take our pressure that we need to fix people, that we need to, that get everybody better. And it's all about me and what I do off. Yeah. We could enjoy a lot more. And I think that's potential to really make this experience really rewarding for therapists and doing this type of work. And, and working with difficult and difficult situations and really being okay with it and not getting burnt out and not getting cold hearted. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, we've all seen these therapists jaded. around us jaded. Yeah. And I mean, how great, like, would it be if we didn't have to worry about that happening? Yeah, so, that's, that, that's amazing. And, and if, and, and that just spills over into your treatment, it spills over into your patient and maybe their outcomes. And cause you know, but you know, if, if, you go in and, and not even you talk to a person, forget a physical therapist who's jaded or who's, you know, burnt out. Like in your mind, you're thinking, why is this person like, what is up with this person? Like, right. Why are they even here? It doesn't seem like they even want to help me. And, or they don't seem like they want to talk to me. Forget about PTs, but just people in general. Yeah. I mean, you get that feeling and you're like, okay, moving on. You know, like this person yeah. is clearly not interested in what I have to say or what I'm doing. Yeah, and there's the reasons why people show up at your doorstep are varied, and they're and just accept like I don't know what happened with the, the moment before this person's life. I'm just gonna roll with it and go with it, and then who knows? Like I think, I think yeah, it's like, but don't yeah, taking that all that on yourself and really be like I gotta you know, do I gotta this. be the I, fixer. Yeah, is it's just like. I've been there personally and it's exhausting. It's, it is exhausting. And there's always going to be, and, and this is opinion, but my, based on my own practical experience, there's always going to be people that, that aren't going to respond that are going to, that are no matter what of you course. do. And I think, and I think it's natural to feel like, Oh, I could have done more. I could have done this, that. Yeah. I mean, that's learning there. That's a good, mm-hmm. good thing to notice, but like, you know, just, that's 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 the process and 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 if you can learn to say well you know what i was doing the best that i could and with the information i was given at the Mm -hmm. time Mm -hmm. and and this is what i took away from it and and just move on and and i I think it's you know i i really feel strongly about that that's that that it's really important that we identify that in ourselves and within the profession because i think you know it's 
it, the system doesn't make it easy always. And I think that's the, that's the challenging part. I think mm-hmm. so. You, you might hear this podcast will be like, you know, yeah, you might work in a practice that really pushes productivity mm-hmm. and it might be hard or they might constrain you and try to sort of say, well, you have to do bill this way or you have to, even though they shouldn't say that, they might say, this is what we need from you. And, and it's important to realize that, 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 that um, that can happen, and that's where we need to to advocate for ourselves as a profession. That's why we, you know, all the policy work, all the stuff mm-hmm. that really tries to go into to shaping the direction of where this profession goes, and and what we can be um, is really important. That's where the research comes in, and and as therapists, you know, being creative if, if in, a, in a place if this isn't working, you know, if you can, obviously there's situations where it's you know. You know, people need jobs. You know, try to try to re make some changes. I know there's a lot of great therapists out there that are doing novel things. And I think your show does a great job, like showcasing that. So, um, yeah, I think it's important. Yeah, and and you know, bottom line is, and I'm glad that you made the point of like, as a physical therapist, you know, we can't if if you if all you're doing is going to work thinking that you have to fix people, it's it is it's exhausting. And, and then it can have detrimental effects on you. You know, look at, even you look at TV shows of like who the fixers are, like Ray Donovan, like that guy's a mess. Yeah. You know, or, yeah. or Olivia Pope on Scandal, she's a mess. Yeah. You know, so just think about those people, like all they do all day is fix things. Right. Without sort of taking the time to sort of reflect on, on themselves. And it's, God, there. I just watched Ray Donovan the other day. He's a mess. It's a mess. Yeah. You know, and then and then you do become a little more emotionless and jaded, and you know nobody wants to be around that, including your patients. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's one of the things professionally I started to notice is like, you know, not that you you get someone that if they if they seem like that they know everything you know, or that they can treat everything. Those should be mm. red flags right away. If you're, yep. if you're, if you're in, in a system and someone says, well, I got this specific for that or this or that, you know, be, that's where just being humble, you know, humility is, uh, is, is saying, well, yeah, I mean, I maybe, but, um, yeah, I think that, that, that sort of, there's, 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 you get kind of into self-promoting behaviors, uh, mm-hmm. promoting a certain, certain, uh, uh, fix, fixing quick sort fix. of, yeah, quick fix. And, and I think that that can take over really perhaps noticing the sense of like awareness and, and, and even the sense of pain that, that the individual that, that gets away, that doesn't respond mm-hmm. to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I agree, and I'm really glad that you brought that up. And on that note, we're kind of running out of time. But what I'd like you to do, um, not to put you on the spot or anything, but um, what would you say are the biggest points or the biggest takeaways from this interview that you want people to kind of come away with? Um, oh gosh, yeah, I, know uh, we I guess about a lot. Yeah, sure. I think, I think, I think. Um, continuing to learn, continuing to branch out in terms of where, where, you know, I think don't always, not always to focus on the RCTs within physical therapy as a cons- the only source of your knowledge. Look out, look outward, look into 
um, even outside of science into the humanities. I find a lot of inspiration and just really great thinking um, within more sort of humanist, humanistic discussions. And that's a little more philosophical. And I know that's not everyone's, everyone's kind of um, interests, but um, I think that's just kind of to open your experience to more things. Mm -hmm. I think also just to, 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 to notice and be mindful of your own, the way that you're interacting with the patient and constantly be trying to improve that as a source of your intervention. And then, uh, yeah, um, don't be afraid to try new things, I guess. I mean, that's how we all learn. And, um, and sometimes, you know, that that's uncomfortable and it's, as as is uncomfortable as a therapist to say, well, I'm going to try this, this new way of interacting and it might not go the way that I'm always used to expecting that all my interactions go, but maybe that's okay. And being, being open to what that experience, what, what happens with that experience. Yeah. So kind of being comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. I think someone wrote a book about that. Somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I think there's probably like 25 books about that, probably more, 250, who knows, but a lot of books about that. Um, well, Eric, thank you so much for coming on. And and where can people find you? I know you're on Twitter. And so what's your... Probably Twitter is the best spot. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really uh, blog so much in long form um, um, too much anymore because it's my the academic life. So I'm at, just at, at E. Kruger. DPT on Twitter. Um, there's a link to kind of kind of a professional bio page. Um, I'm also on Soma Simple's Mile High, uh, even though I'm not on there so much anymore. Um, just it's just a time thing. It's not yeah. a yeah. Uh, you like to get your thoughts across in what is it, 140 characters or less? Yeah, that that's a good good habit. Yeah. <laughs> And that's it. Well, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. This was a great talk. I feel like we could definitely keep going with this, and perhaps one day we will We will in the future. Um, but thanks so much for coming on. And everyone, thanks so much for listening today. Uh, find Eric on Twitter. Follow him on Twitter. And go to ptdayofservice.com for more information on that service day in October. So thanks for li listening. Have a great week. Stay healthy, wealthy, and smart.